Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. We're finishing off this morning. It has been a joy for us to work through this gospel of Luke. There's much more that lies ahead. But our focus this morning is Luke 19, verses 41 through 48. Please follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray together. Father God, this is your holy word. Direct us now in your truth. Give us insight, O Lord, into your person. That as we see and behold Christ, as we understand more of his heart, as we understand the purpose of his labors, that we might be conformed to his person. That we might have similar compassion for the lost. That we might have similar zeal for worship. That we might have a similar heart for the truth of your scriptures. Take our hearts, Father God, and guide them in all righteousness. In your name we pray. Amen. When was the last time you wept? You know, people can cry tears of joy, but weeping is necessarily something associated with great loss or great grief or great pain. So when was the last time you really wept? Was it at the death of a loved one? Was it maybe following a very bad diagnosis? Perhaps it is when you received some horrific news, or perhaps it was when you found out that you had been sinned against in some terrible and grievous way. But let me ask us this question more spiritually. Have you ever wept over the depth of your own depravity and sin? You know, Jesus wept. And in our text this morning, this is exactly what we see him weeping over. Outside of the Gospels, the only other uh, place that Jesus is mentioned as weeping is in Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. It says there that Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. When we come back to the Gospels, we have this verse, verse 41 here in our text, and just John eleven thirty five 35 that tell us of how Jesus wept. What is it that moved the Lord of glory to weep? 
Here today we see him weeping over the stubborn lostness of his own people. Over the judgment that he knew they were going to suffer for their rejection of him. But what is even more amazing as we look at these verses this morning is that even though Christ wept over their rejection, he still went to them. He had compassion on them. And he wanted righteousness for them. And so let's walk through this text this morning as we first consider Christ's grief for the coming judgment. His grief for their coming judgment. You know, Mark 11 tells us that after the triumphal entry on Sunday, Jesus and his disciples went into the temple and looked around at everything, but because it was late, they went back out to Bethany. So on Monday morning, as they made their way back to the temple, as Jesus came over the Mount of Olives and saw the city of Jerusalem, it is then that he wept over it. And in the words that follow, we see that he truly grieves over the state of their hearts. He starts in verse 42 by saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. You know, Jesus had come to his own people to bring them peace with God, the peace of salvation. And the things that make for peace are repentance and faith. Faith like the blind man had when he cried out on the road to Jericho, and repentance such as what Zacchaeus demonstrated when he committed to give back fourfold what he had stolen. As Ephesians 2.14 says, Jesus Christ himself is our peace. And when we believe in him, we are justified by grace through faith, and thus we have peace with God. So Jesus came to give his people this peace, to be their peace, but they would not have it. So these things were now hidden from their eyes, it says here. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus would not continue to cast his pearls before swine. He reached a point in his earthly ministry where the people were meant to be locked in their rejection of him and the truth hidden from their sight. Romans 1 speaks of how man in his sinfulness exchanges the truth of God for a lie, and as a result, God hands mankind over to judgment. Similarly, their refusal to hear the gospel would now result in God's judgment coming upon the whole nation. And that's exactly what Jesus explains in verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so contrary to the common Jewish mindset, Israel's rejection of the Messiah would result in God standing against them rather than standing for them. The Messiah would ultimately be the source of the temple's destruction rather than restoring it and lifting it to its greatest glory. And this destruction would be so complete that not one stone would be left upon another. All of it would be completely torn down because the people failed to realize God's visitation among them. And it would take place within this generation in A.D. 70. And it all took place later just as Jesus said it would. In A.D. 66, religious tensions between the Jews and Greeks erupted into full-blown violence against the Greeks. And in a very short period of time, it turned into a full-blown Jewish rebellion. The local military garrisons were defeated. Roman officials fled the area. The Roman government even sent garrisons from Syria to come in and quell the revolt. 
but they were ambushed and defeated by Jewish rebels at the Battle of Beth Horon. And so the emperor of Rome sent General Vespasian and his son Titus with four legions of Roman soldiers to begin cleansing the country from top to bottom. They started in Galilee in AD 67, and they conquered one Jewish city and settlement right after another. It all resulted in General Titus laying siege to the city of Jerusalem in April of 70 AD. He literally surrounded the city, and when Passover came during that time period, he allowed people to go in the city to worship, but he didn't let them come back out, which put even more strain on the food and resources inside. Finally, on the 10th of August in AD 70, Titus burst into the city, and there was a slaughter such had never been seen in Israel up to that time. The temple was burned to the ground. The gold and all the precious metals were taken from every temple stone as plunder by the Roman army. Josephus tells us that 1.1 million people were slaughtered in the course of just a couple days and that 97,000 more were enslaved. One historian noted the slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The number of slain exceeded that of the slayers. The legionaries literally had to clamor over heaps of dead bodies to continue the work of extermination. Exactly what Jesus said here on this day that he wept over Jerusalem came about within that generation. Titus, after returning to Rome victoriously, reputedly refused to accept the wreath of victory that was reserved for him, saying that his victory over Jerusalem did not come as a result of his own efforts, but that he had merely served as an instrument of God's wrath. Even a pagan general realized that in the slaughter of Jerusalem, he was an instrument of God's will. You know, this prophetic promise of judgment given by Jesus himself and its horrific fulfillment reminds us how serious the judgment of God is. The same judgment awaits anyone and everyone who rejects Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 warns us that the day is coming when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Brothers and sisters, we must understand with all the gravity that it requires that hell is a real place. And it is a place where all the terrifying wrath of the Godhead is poured out in never-ending torment. And with that, there is the complete absence of any of the mercy of Christ. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Understand that there is only one salvation from this wrath to come. There is only one way to be redeemed from your sins. There is only one way to be spared the very judgment of a holy and righteous God, and that is by believing in His Son. 
Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has fulfilled all righteousness perfectly, living the life that all of us have failed to live as lawbreakers and rebels. Jesus Christ has died on the cross, bearing the wrath of God in the sinner's place. And Jesus Christ is risen. He is alive and glorified at the right hand of God this very day. And he calls all men everywhere to repent and believe and be saved. Don't be deceived by a moral life. Don't be received by religious tendencies. Don't be deceived by a world that tells you all you have to do is be sincere and be a good person and you will be welcomed into the arms of God when you die. Hear me very carefully. If you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, all you will hear on your day of judgment is, depart from me, for I never knew you. That leads us to the next point of this text, which is Christ's zeal for the purity of their worship. Christ's zeal for the purity of their worship. It says in verse 45, And then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so as Jesus and his disciples made their way into the city and came into the temple, Jesus was once again overcome with a righteous anger when he saw what was going on in his father's house. And I want you to notice that I just said, again. You see, few people realize that dominant scholarship as we look at the Gospels is that there were actually two cleansings of the temple. In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, Jesus, we are told there that Jesus, the first time during his earthly ministry, once it began, he came to the city of Jerusalem three years earlier for Passover. It was then that he also cleansed the temple. You can read of that in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Now, a couple of years later, once again, Jesus has come into his father's house and he has found that the priests have put back exactly that same corruption that he cleansed it of before. You know, if you think of the Temple Mound, it really was a massive expanse there. I've been to the Temple Mound in Jerusalem. Surrounding the temple there on the Temple Mound is a wide expanse known as the Court of the Gentiles. Historians of the day tell us it was about 750 by 750 feet, about 13 acres. At crowded times like Passover, this court could easily hold more than 100,000 people. And there were colonnades around the edge of the expanse of this temple. And it was under those colonnades that a religious marketplace operated under the auspices of Annas, the high priest. In fact, it was known as the Bazaar of Annas. Merchants would buy the right to have concessions selling sacrificial animals, wine, oil, salt, all the things that were required for sacrifice. And they would also have tables where they would exchange foreign currency into the proper denominations for the temple offerings. In addition to the rights that they had to pay in order to operate there, they would also have to give a kickback, a certain percentage of their profits to Annas. And so according to historians, during these peak observances, like Passover, the priests would be very selective about how, what animals they would allow people to bring into the Temple Mount from outside. They wanted to force the people to have to buy livestock from there in the market that operated in the temple. And as you can imagine, the prices charged for these animals that were declared clean already by the priest were five to ten times what was normal. And those who had to have their currency exchanged, they would be charged fees that would go up to as much as 25% of what they brought. And so this marketplace was a 
literally a market to extort worshipers. Well, upon coming in, uh, coming into the temple, Jesus was once again burdened for what he saw happening to the people of Israel. The highest religious authorities in all of Israel had managed to turn the whole system of sacrificial worship into a corrupt commercial enterprise that was enshrined right there in the, in the temple precincts. And so he began to drive them out. The parallel passage in Matthew tells us that he was tossing over tables and seats and kicking out the sellers and the buyers. And you can just imagine the spectacle, right? Surprised people stepping back from Jesus as others who heard the commotion were rushing forward to see what was going on. Tables full of merchandise and chains thrown over, smashed and scattered. Animals and sheep running through the temple courts, doves flapping away as merchants were busily trying to recapture them. And there was Jesus right in the middle, exercising his divine authority to clear his father's house of the spectacle of greed. When Jesus told them in verse 46, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers, he was quoting from two passages. The first was Isaiah 56, which we read from earlier where it says, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And the other was Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11. In Jeremiah 7 and 8, or excuse me, Jeremiah 7 verses 9 and 10, the Lord is talking about all the hypocrisy of the Jews who live godless, rebellious lives and then come into the temple and make their sacrifices to the Lord. And, and the Lord finally says in verse 11, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have have seen it, declares the Lord. And so Jesus was rebuking them for becoming exactly what God described through the prophet Jeremiah. Now there are three very interesting things to consider here from these verses. First of all, we want to understand that Jesus wasn't just mad about the corruption. He was casting out the merchants and the people who were buying from them. Even if the merchants had been completely honest, Jesus still would have thrown them all out of the temple because the temple was to be a place of worship, not a place of trade. Secondly, and this is another thing that's interesting, no one dared to stop him. And the temple had its own guards with Roman-sanctioned authority to police the temple and even to put people to death under some circumstances. But the guards and the priests, they didn't try to stop Jesus. Why? Well, the chief priests were afraid of the people. The people had just hailed Jesus as the Messiah the day before, and so they knew they were in a tenuous situation. On top of that, the people also hated how the priest charged them double and triple and quadruple for sacrificial animals. And so if they tried to stop Jesus, the people were going to take his side anyway. But even more than that, brothers and sisters, it's not just fear of the people that kept the religious leaders from stopping from stopping Jesus, it was the sovereign hand of God. You know what? They couldn't stop the Son of God in his own temple any more than the lions could have eaten Daniel. God's sovereign hand stayed them all. Thirdly, in cleansing the, in, in cleansing the temple, Jesus was not just expressing his righteous anger over the intrusion of commerce into the main place of Jewish worship. He was exercising his authority as holy God incarnate. Jesus was the Lord returning to purify his temple. 
And the Jews had this messianic expectation based on Ezekiel 40 through 48 and Zechariah 6 that the Messiah would arrive and renew and purify the temple. But all of that had been lost. It was now subservient to their twisted perspective that the Messiah would be a national liberator. They wanted a Messiah who would raise an army and free them from Rome. They wanted a a Messiah who would restore Israel with the power of King David and the splendor of King Solomon. The day before, on the day of his triumphal entry, they wanted him to march right into Jerusalem and go right to the Roman palace and unseat the Roman authorities. That was their desire. But as one pastor noted, instead of attacking Rome, Jesus attacked Judaism. Instead of being a conqueror, he was a confronter. Instead of promoting revolution, he preached righteousness. And instead of clearing the enemy without, Jesus cleansed the enemy within. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to purge Israel of its foreign enemies. He came to cleanse men's hearts from the wickedness of sin. In cleansing the temple... Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. Malachi 3, 1 through 3, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. Jesus was God incarnate. And by cleansing the temple, he was making an explicit claim to authority over the temple. And for those who had eyes to see, he was making an implicit statement of his divinity as well. God had returned to his temple in purifying force, and now he himself would be the ultimate and final sacrifice for the sins of the people. And what we also see in this is that Christ has a holy zeal for the purity of his people's worship. Even when we go back under the old covenant, under the old law, we see God giving Israel very specific instructions about how he was to be worshipped so that his name was not profaned. God has always and has even now a heart that his people worship him righteously in spirit and in truth. And so that leads us to the question, as we think about this, as we apply this as believers, how do you define good worship? As you think about the times that you've been to church, and there's some of you who have been at many other churches just because of job movement and other things, you've been in a lot of different places. And many times we are put into a place to decide what is a good church, what is good worship? And you get really interesting answers when you begin to ask people questions. Well, what makes a worship service good? Oh, well, you know, it's when the music is really moving me, you know, and it's, it's just great music that appeals to my soul. And, you know, it's, it's when the, the preacher uses those humorous and pithy illustrations that just help drive that message right home, you know. Those illustrations, they're memorable. And, and it's when the pastor doesn't pray too long, you know, because, you know, we, we don't want to be uncomfortable. The truth is, brothers and sisters, so much of what we see presented as an idea of worship in the American church, it's nothing more than repackaged worldliness. 
You know, we give lip service in the American church to the idea that God's word is enough, that God's word is sufficient. And yet, in our practice, we feel like we have to add to it. We have to make it more appealing. We have to dress it up. We have to add some drama to it. We have to add some smoke machines and some light and some rock to it. Because that is what reaches people nowadays. Hear me very clearly. If people are being reached today, brothers and sisters, it's not because the tenor of the music, it's because of the Spirit of God. And when God calls His people to worship, He calls us to worship in spirit and in truth. Christ died to redeem us from an earthly perspective of what worship is. Christ died to free us from the dominance of our preferences over us. Christ died so that we might have the very Spirit of God within us and by that Spirit that we might understand His Word, being illumined to His truth, that we might take that Word and that we might understand that real worship is where we sing the Word, where we pray the Word, where we preach the Word, and where we as the people of God as a result practice the Word. That's worship. Don't, don't be a slave to your preferences. Be a servant of Christ, one who worships him from a heart of love, because that is what he has redeemed you for, and that is what he has redeemed you to. Scripture is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. Guard the purity of your worship, church. That takes us to the third and final thing we see in this text, and we see Christ's vigilance, finally, to meet their spiritual need. We pick up at verse 47, and it says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. Jesus did not just correct the people. He did not just drive out the corruption of Annas' marketplace. He filled that void with truth. He continued to teach and disciple them in the Scriptures. Every subsequent day of this Passion Week, Jesus taught them. The Lord of glory who gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle. The Lord of glory who directed the heart of Solomon to build the first temple. The Lord of glory who even sovereignly moved through the pagan will of King Herod to build this temple. He stood among them on his holy mount and provided to them what their souls needed most. His truth. His person. Do you understand, brother, sister, that that's your greatest need? His truth. His person. Those are the only things that will truly satisfy your soul. We look, we look for satisfaction in a lot of other things. Unfortunately, a lot of other things that are mostly in this world. But they will always leave us hungry, thirsty, and even worse, ruined and wrecked. It is the person and the truth of Christ that truly satisfies. We go on to the, next, to the next part of verse 47, and we see one of the great ironies. It's so ironic that the very priesthood that God established under the old covenant, the very priests that were entrusted to be stewards of the very word of God, they were seeking to destroy him when he came to his temple. You know, men who love power cannot abide threats to their power. And so the chief priest and the scribes and the principal men of the city were seeking to destroy him. They are living proof that the darkness hates the light. 
And unfortunately, again, there has remained throughout church history an element of people who readily love the power that religion affords them over the lives of others, but they hate the truth. They hate the real Christ, and they spend their lives dedicated to deceit and falsehood. And what awaits them if they do not repent is hell's hottest fire. But though they hated him, they couldn't do anything to him while he taught in the temple. Why? Because it says here, verse 48, the people were hanging on his every word. Had they tried to assault him or arrest him there, they would have had a riot on their hands, and they knew it. But we also know that this was not yet God's time. Here on this Monday of Passion Week, the Lord was in his temple and he would not be removed. It was his place. And I want you to think about that, even in light of the whole life of Christ, as we back out. Think about that. It was in the holy place, just just a couple hundred yards from where Christ was probably teaching. It was in the holy place, right outside the Holy of Holies, that Gabriel spoke to Zechariah to tell him that his son John the Baptist would be the forerunner of the Messiah. It was in the courts of the temple, right there where Jesus was teaching. When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus at eight days old in obedience to the law, it was Simeon who lifted up that baby and proclaimed him to be the Christ. It was right there in those temple courts when the boy Jesus was taken to Jerusalem for special observance when he was 12 years old. He was in the temple speaking with the leaders, left behind by his own family. Why? Because he must be in his father's house. And it was from the pinnacle of the temple that Satan perversely tempted Jesus to throw himself down to test God and to prematurely reveal his messiahship. Jesus had visited the temple and he had taught in the holy city numerous times during his earthly ministry. And every time his true sheep hung on his every word. And now the temple was the pulpit of Passion Week. His use of the temple was the last and ultimate glory of the temple because just as Jesus was going to be destroyed, the temple was also going to be destroyed. You see, as Jesus taught here during the last week before his betrayal and crucifixion, he was laying the foundation for a new temple, a temple not made with human hands. He was building a new temple on earth, a living temple composed of us, composed of the saints. That's you and me. We now are the temple of Christ, Ephesians 2, 19 and following. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you hear that, church? We are his temple in this earth that remains. And not only that, he himself is preparing a more perfect place for those who love him, for those he calls according to his purpose. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John tells us, And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or of moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Think of the beauty of what's described there. In the holy city, there's no temple. Because just as we are the temple of Christ on this earth, He is our dwelling place in heaven. He is our. Brothers and sisters, as we draw this to a close, let us remember Christ is faithful to meet our every need as his children. He has died to redeem us from empty religion, to redeem us from worldly lust and worldly greed and worldly anger, to redeem us from the despair and hopelessness of our sin. Jesus has died to bring us unto himself that where he is, we may be also. And do you understand, church, that he is working in us even now to prepare us for the day that we will behold him? Even now. And I know there, there are so many of us in this room who have been through times of struggle and who have times of struggle ahead of us. We've gone through times of grief and pain. We've gone through family trouble. We, we experience marital trouble where it seems like the person we're meant to be closest in our lives is our enemy. We've gone through trouble with this world because we've given ourselves over to temptation and we brought ourselves and our family into suffering. We're going through times where we're facing death and loss. But you know what? Every single one of those circumstances taps into a very primal thing that God himself has created us with in our soul, and that is a longing for him. Because in Christ there is no death, there's only life. In Christ, there's no longer any pain or suffering. There's only cheer and bliss for all eternity. In Christ, we're free from this body of flesh and sin. We don't have to struggle anymore with lust and greed and anger and apathy and all those things that continually set themselves upon us. Christ has set us free. Christ is preparing us for a glory that is far beyond anything here in comparison. Christ is the King, the Savior, the Shepherd that secures it all for us. 1 John 3, 1-3 See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Church, don't forget that. You are the temple of the living Christ on this earth. In all, all of our circumstances, all of our lives, all of our personal history, all of our corporate history, all of world history is building to that day of consummation when we shall see him just as he is. And he will bring us to be with him in that bliss for all eternity. That is our hope. That is even what we celebrate when we come to the table of the Lord. 
when we come as, as, as Christ's people and we observe this ordinance, this sacrament, this is the, the, the kingdom meal, if you will. This, this represents our past that we have died with Christ and been born to walk in newness of life. It represents our current faith, the fact that we are resting in and trusting in Christ who indwells us. And it represents our future hope that there is a day coming when we shall be gathered with Christ in heaven at the marriage feast of the Lamb to sup with Him for all eternity. This meal is for believers in Christ in other words, you are welcome to this table if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Luke records for us again what happened on the day of Pentecost. And it says in Acts chapter 2 that those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. If that describes you, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and been baptized and identified with a biblical family of faith, then you are a brother and sister. You are a fellow saint of God's household, and we welcome you to come to this table and partake. But if that does not describe you, if you are not trusting in Christ, I want you to understand you should not partake of this because the Bible also warns very clearly that those who partake of this supper in an unworthy manner eat and drink judgment to themselves. And we would spare you that judgment. We would encourage you even to take the time of this Lord's Supper to weigh your soul before Christ and to consider whether or not you are trusting Him as your Savior and Lord. Finally, I would have you understand that your, your welcome to the table is not dependent upon your worthiness. We are welcome to this table because of the worthiness of Christ. You may feel like you're a Christian who's been struggling, even failing. You may feel like you've been losing battles left and right. I want you to understand that Christ redeemed you from all your sin. You are unworthy, but Christ is worthy for you. And so confess and walk in repentance and come to this table and be strengthened by this observance as we look corporately as one body to Christ who is our head and rejoice in all that he is for us in all the manifold graces and mercies that he lavishes upon his children let us prepare our hearts to go before the Lord table servants please come